Good morning. Throughout the course of history, there have been many nations that came into existence because of revolutions, ours included, and associated with many of those revolutions were transformative ideas that served to challenge the way things had always been done and to envision a new way of organizing a society. In our own revolution, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created equal, that they were endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A few years later, the French Revolution had its own adaptation of that. When the slogan of the revolution became life, liberty, and equality. A century later, the Marxist revolution as it swept across Russia would quote lines from Marx to the effect of from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Revolutionary language has been commonplace, particularly in the history of modern revolutions. But if I were to ask historians to compile all the great revolutionary statements of history, I dare say that the one we're going to talk about this morning would appear on none of their lists. And yet it was the opening salvo in a revolutionary idea that touched off a conflict, a war of con conceptual nature that is still being fought around the globe. You have heard this statement hundreds of times. You don't even pay any attention to it when you hear it because the words are so embedded in your psyche, you just skip ahead to what's going to happen next. But I hope you'll leave today with an altogether different perspective on what I consider the most revolutionary statement in history. And here it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that doesn't strike us as all that extraordinary. But in the ancient world, at the time these words were written, this was an absolutely different way of looking at reality and looking at our existence and looking at the universe's existence from any that predominated anywhere. And it set up a conflict that plays out through the entirety of the Old Testament and the history of the Jewish people. It was a conflict between the Jewish worldview and the pagan worldview. And there are many of those differences. I'm going to hold myself only to a half a dozen just by way of illustration this morning. And this is really not where we're going to be focusing our time. We're going to be focusing our time on an equivalent conflict that's going on in our own day. 
But I think we understand the present sometimes by going back and looking at exemplars of a similar phenomenon in the past. And so I want to step back and look at the world as the Jews confronted it intellectually, conceptually, culturally, and socially throughout their history, and particularly in the Old, period time, uh, Old Testament period. First of all, the Jews held there is one God. Nowhere in the pagan world would you have found that idea acceptable. The Jews were ridiculed about it and mocked about it, for the next thousand years, we could say it pretty much the next 2,000 years, because all nations believed in a multiplicity of gods. There was a brief exception in Egypt around 1450 when Amenhotep, the Pharaoh, decided to exalt the worship of Atan, the god of the sun, and destroyed all the competing temples and tried to crush all of the priests of other gods and established the worship of Atan as the one god in Egypt. Uh, he even renamed himself Akhenaten, which means pleasing to God. But as soon as he died, all of that was erased. In fact, it's very difficult to trace the history of his pharaonic rule because the, the Egyptians obliterated everything they could that would remember him or what he said or what he taught. The Greek world, the Roman world, the Babylonian world, the Assyrian world, the pagan world took it for granted. There were multiple gods, and the idea that there's only one god was absolutely ridiculous. Second, the idea that God existed before time and is independent of it violated all of their mythology. In the mythology of all the ancient world, gods come into existence after time is already flowing, and they are a product of it. God created the heavens and the earth? Nonsense, they would have said to anyone advancing such an idea. The Jewish worldview was that God, in essence, is an invisible spirit. The pagans saw gods as physical beings, more exalted than men, more powerful than men, wiser than men, longer living than men, but physical beings. And the idea that you would have a god who was invisible, the Romans in particular, found that very difficult to accept. In fact, one of the taunts that the Romans threw at the Jews was the reason your God is invisible is because he really looks like a donkey. And if he ever revealed what he really looks like, no one would respect him. No one would follow such a God. In fact, the earliest anti-Christian graffiti we have ever uncovered is a picture of a donkey on a cross. Listen to the symbolism in that against the backdrop of centuries of taunting that your God really looks like a donkey. God created the universe. The pagan view was the universe spawned to the gods. 
The mythology of all the ancient nations explains through their stories and their metaphors how the gods were birthed from a universe that already existed, the idea that a pre-existing God created the universe and everything we know was absolutely foreign to the ancient mindset. This God, however, not only preceded time, his power and his presence was universal. The gods of the pagans were very local. The gods of Egypt had no real power over in Babylon. The gods of Canaan had no real power over in Assyria. Gods were very localized in their power and in their influence. And yet Jewish literature is going to celebrate for centuries. Where can we go that God is not there? The story of Jonah, the most telling example of this. If I can just get on a ship and get far enough away, he was headed to the mouth of the Mediterranean. I'll get beyond this God who's told me to go to Nineveh. But in his flight, he learned that God's power and God's presence are universal. Humans bear the image of God. To the pagans, gods bore the image of humans. Think of all the statues, all the drawings, all of the imagery we have of ancient gods, some of them have some beast-like creatures, but they are fundamentally humans, humanoids of some sort, because they could not envision any creature that is greater than a human, so their gods simply had to be oversized humans. Not so, said the Jews. Most importantly, and this is radically revolutionary. The Jews and then the Christians believed that our moral code and our ethical code derives from the nature of God. Because He is loving, we are to be loving. Because He is kind, we are to be compassionate. Because He makes covenant and keeps covenant, we are to make covenant and keep covenant. There is an absolute integration of morality with the nature of God. But in the rest of the ancient world, you didn't take your morality from your gods. After all, some of the gods were pretty immoral. When you start reading Greek and Roman mythology and Babylonian mythology and, and Canaanite mythology, the gods are up to some very ungodly activity at times. And so you didn't get your morals and your ethics from your theology. You got your morals and your ethics from one of two places. In the Greek and, uh, Grecian world, you got it from the philosophers. And the philosophers at the apex of Athenian philosophy all wrote on morals and ethics, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethic being perhaps the most famous of those works. But you got your ethics someplace different from where you got your theology. The other source that you went to was wisdom literature, 
sort of like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. There's a similar kind of literature in Egypt, in the Middle East, everywhere you go in the ancient world. There's a compilation of wise aphorisms to, to, to guide your life. This is how the wise person should live. But it didn't claim to be something revealed by God or something derived from God. It was just what we've learned from living in the world. Now you can see what a sharp difference that we've got here. That the Jews were being called to be different. And they were so different and they were so loyal to that difference that everywhere they ended up moving in the ancient world as Israel would be overrun and refugees would flee to what we today call Asia Minor or down into Alexandria in the days of Jesus. A million Jews lived around Alexandria, even more up in the areas of Ephesus and what we call Asia Minor. As they would go to these other lands... They would continue to practice this difference that would subject them to all kinds of social rejection and ridicule. So much so that the Romans began to refer to them as the gens secundum. The word gens gives us our word Gentile, and it also gives us our word clan. It was a word which meant a clan or a race. Secundum gives us our word second. So what the Romans were saying is, there is one race of humanity, and then there is a second race called the Jews. They're not really one of us. They're a completely alien race. The only reason the Jews weren't absolutely annihilated by opposition that overpowered them, overwhelmed them, and destroyed them, is because when Julius Caesar was competing for the Roman throne against his, his, his foremost enemies for the throne, who were ensconced in Egypt, Israel was caught in the middle and had to choose between the two sides, and they chose Caesar. So when he came to power out of gratitude for them providing an anchor place for him as he dealt with Egypt to their south, he gave them a special privilege under Roman law that they didn't have to sacrifice to the pagan gods. They didn't have to put incense later uh, on the, the altars dedicated to the Caesars as gods. They were exempted from all these pagan things that were difficult for them to do without violating their conscience and their convictions. And so the Jews had a carve-out in Roman law, but they were still the gens secundum. When the Christians came along, they also believed in a God who was invisible, all-knowing, all-powerful. They also believed in a singular God, even though he might manifest himself in three different manifestations as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And... At first, the Romans said, well, they're just another sect of the Jews. They can have the carve-out in the law. But if you read the book of Acts, when Christians are being hauled before Roman courts, 
The Jewish leadership is there saying, they are not one of us. They are not one of us. And eventually the Romans came to see that, and so they gave the, Jew, the Christians the name Gens Tertium, the third race. There is humanity, and then there's this other alien race called the Jews, and still another alien race called the Christians. And that is so fully fledged by the end of the first century that the book of Revelation is written to help Christians who are now being persecuted by the Romans because they will not sacrifice on the Roman altars, reminding them of what they have committed to. They have been called to be separate. And they must be loyal to that commitment. And Paul, Peter also in other passages, underscores that in a passage we won't take time to elaborate on this morning, but it's really fraught with all kinds of implications, in which he says, uh, we are the temple of the living God. God says, therefore, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, Paul says, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch anything unclean, and I will welcome you. Remember that word separate. I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. Be separate. He didn't mean by that to physically separate yourself and go live in some enclave, some place that it's only people like you. Jesus addressed that point in his final dialogue with his disciples when he told them, you are in the world, but you're not of the world. You must live in the world, but with a separate existence in the midst of the world. And for whatever cost that may impose on you. Being different is what God has called us to. And it has created a clash of worldviews. We're no longer dealing with a pagan world the way the Jews were, unless we go to some nations that are still dominated by paganism, as I have in the course of my career. But in our society, in our community, a parallel conflict is going on today between the biblical worldview, and secularism. It has been there for a long time. But in my generation, it has become far more deadly to the Christian worldview than it had ever been before. Our youngsters, teenagers, young adults would find it impossible to believe the world I grew up in, in which neither schools nor community athletic leagues would plan anything on a Wednesday night out of deference to all the churches in the community that had Wednesday night programs for their families. There were no Sunday 
athletic competitions in the local community. No leagues, no playoffs, because it was expected that on Sunday we needed to leave the option open for people who wanted to to go to church. Not everyone was Christian, not by any stretch of the imagination, but there was a deference to those who held a biblical view of the world and had priorities that they drew from that viewpoint. And the deference even extended into the classroom. The first time I realized how marked the division was between the moral and ethical system that I was indoctrinated with growing up as a Christian and one that came out of a secular viewpoint was in my graduate courses in philosophy at North Texas. Usually in those graduate seminars of about 20 people, I was the only person in the room who was not an existentialist. And there have been some some believers in the broadest sense of the word who were existentialists, men like Gabriel Marcel in France. But the thought leadership of the existential movement has almost always been atheistic. And these students in the room with me subscribed to that view. I would be the only one speaking up for a biblical worldview. Later, in my graduate courses as I was working on my doctorate at UCLA in history, it was no longer existentialists but Marxists. I would be in a seminar of 20 people. Everyone in there among the students was a devoted Marxist, except for me. Sometimes the professors weren't Marxists, but none of them were believers. They were at best agnostic, some openly atheistic. And yet, when I would defend my worldview, the professors would see that I was treated with respect, that I was not ridiculed, that my ideas were not dismissed, that people were expected to come up with counter-arguments to stand up against mine. Do you think that would happen in higher education in most secular institutions today? How long has it been since anyone deferred to churches on Wednesday nights or Sundays in the way that they scheduled events for our kids and our families? The battle lines have become much more ferocious. And it's beginning to have a telling effect. Insidiously, secular views are creeping into the way that we approach Christianity. The Pew Research Center, 2019, one of our most respected polling entities, surveyed 35,000 people to get a sense of where they were religiously. And what they found was that 65% of all Americans identified themselves as Christians, self-identified. Now, that may seem low to you. I'm not surprised that's the number. When I was president of Columbia Christian College in Portland, and Oregon is probably the most secular state in the Union, um, our sociology students, and sometimes the mission majors from across the street at Multnomah Bible College, which was on the back side of our campus, uh, but across the street and down the street away, the two schools would send kids out to do religious censuses of the Portland area. 
This was 1980s, early 80s. We would find that fewer people would profess alliance with any Christian organization than was true at that time in Seoul, Korea. We had the statistics for both cities. And there were more people willing to say, I am a Christian, and here is the fellowship that I'm part of in Seoul, Korea, than in Portland, Oregon. So I wasn't surprised when I saw this number. We who live in the Bible Belt have sometimes lost touch with how much there is a secular drift that has settled over our culture. 65% of these identify them as Christians, but of these, less than half, 29%, consider themselves highly religious. So even though we are willing to identify as Christians, fewer and few of us, fewer of us, are genuinely religious. George Barna has, for 20 years at least, been the most respected pollster in following the track of what is happening in religious America. In 2020, he did some research that identified a number of things for us, but one is this interesting category. What's the number of Christians who consider their faith important? Listen to that and attend church regularly who have a biblical worldview. What would you guess that number would be? Those who say faith is very important to them, and they attend church regularly. What percentage would you put on that? Barna's answer, 17%. You say, well, what's he considering a biblical worldview? I'll show you. And as you watch it, notice the things that are not on it. Barna's biblical worldview was described this way. Six things. A person who believes that moral truth, absolute moral truth exists. Secondly, that the Bible is totally accurate in all of its principles, the principles it lays out. Satan is a real being or force, not merely symbolic. Fourth, people cannot earn their way into heaven by trying to be be good or to do good works. Fifth, Jesus lived a sinless life on earth. And sixth, God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the world who still rules the universe today. What's missing from that list? There's not one word in there about the incarnation. There's not one word in there about belief in the resurrection. There's not one word in there about a day of judgment, about a heaven or a hell. And yet, with this pared-down list of a biblical worldview, Barna found 17% of the people who go to church regularly and say their faith is important, subscribe to these six principles in toto. What would be the number if we added some of these other things that you and I would consider part of the biblical worldview? And remember, the 17% he came up with, it's not 17% of the population. It's not 17% of that 65% 
who are willing to self-identify as Christians, it's 17% of the people who say faith is important to them and they go to church regularly. And so if you make some deductions from that, you come up with something like 6 to 10% of the people in the United States today really have anything like what we consider a biblical worldview. And I don't think we've realized that we have shrunk to that minority. And yet, the research seems to bear it out. Now, I've been talking about a secular world. What do I mean by secularism? Again, six quick tenets. Not every secularist I know believes all of these, but this is a pretty good roadmap of the way the secularists view the world. First of all, ultimate reality is entirely physical. The idea that we have a spirit that is behind the universe and permeates it doesn't fit with the secular view of reality. Everything is physical, material in nature. And I mean by physical, ultimate reality can always be explained by the laws of physics or the related sciences. I'm not talking about physical in the sense of going to the doctor and getting a physical. The word physical is used here in a little bit different sense. It can be explained by physics or the related sciences. Second, everything that exists or occurs is the result of natural causation. So there's no place in a secular view of things to say, man, my aunt was sick and just overnight we prayed and prayed and prayed and she was just healed. It was a miracle. <laughs> Nonsense. There was some natural cause for it. Anything that we find as an evidence of God's acting in the world, the secularist is going to try to find a natural cause for it. I had a history professor once who went through the entire Old Testament. He was a pretty good Bible scholar and explained every miracle in the Old Testament by some natural event that just happened to coincide with the moment that the Jews or someone within the Jewish community needed help. And when he finished, he looked over at me and sort of smugly said, well, Mr. Armour, what do you think of that? And I said, I've just seen the, a miracle bigger than any of them. And he said, how's that? And I said, for 2,000 years, every time God's people got in a desperate situation, nature just coincidentally helped them out of it. That's a bigger miracle than any of the things you've been talking about. <laughs> he had a good sense of humor. He laughed about it. I'm not sure a professor today would laugh about it, <laughs> but uh, uh, he did. Only ideas which science can verify may be discussed in the public forum. By the public forum, I mean the courts, politics, and journalism. If I start taking a position that expresses convictions out of my biblical worldview, I'm be told that's, that's inappropriate. It's going to be silence. It's going to be quelched. I'm going to be canceled. Because if it can't be proven by science, it's not an acceptable part of public discourse. And yet, there are many things that are accepted by the secularists as true that depend on the same kind of proof that we depend on to prove the existence of God. 
I'll just give you one. The unconscious mind. I do not know a psychologist or neurological specialist who denies that there is an unconscious mind. Have you ever weighed one? How much would an unconscious mind weigh? What, what are the dimensions of an unconscious mind? We, we can't scientifically verify there is an unconscious mind, but it is universally accepted because it is the best explanation we have for the phenomenon that we experience. And Freud first started noticing those things that were the indirect evidence of the unconscious mind, and eventually that's become a universally accepted truth. But how do we prove the existence of God? With the same line of argumentation. And so there's a falsity at this point in the secular worldview, but we are held answerable to it. The goal of, per the goal of life is personal happiness. This is where secularism has drifted into the church more than you would believe. In my years of ministry, I cannot tell you how many people I have counseled who were Christians, who were on the verge of doing something, are already involved in something that is a violation of biblical morality, who would say to me, but God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. And I would say to them, and what chapter and verse is that in? I can name you a lot of saints in Scripture who went through a lot of unhappiness to be loyal to God and to carry out their duty to Him. Jeremiah writing the book of Lamentations, watching Jerusalem burn, which meant that his life mission had failed. He laments with a broken heart what is happening to God's holy city. He didn't believe the end of life was happiness. He believed the end was honoring God with our lives, whatever the cost, whatever the challenge. Making moral judgments against others is the most horrid sin. My truth is not necessarily your truth. Uh, you don't have any right to judge me. And so we've become a world in which we have been reduced to a small and shrinking minority. And it's a world in which because making judgments about people is such a horrid sin, that anytime we make a judgment about someone's lifestyle or someone's morality, we are attacked because the only people you are still free to attack politically and in the press and get away with it are Christians. You can't attack Muslims. You can't attack Hindus. You can't attack Jews. You can't attack atheists. You can't attack agnostics. Their truth is just not your truth. But no one stands up and defends the Christian like my professors did today. We are fair game. 
just like the, Jew, uh, the Christians became fair game once the Romans started teaching, treating them as gens tertium. They no longer had the carve-out of Roman law. So the implications are we are, have been reduced to a small and shrinking minority, and we need to open our eyes to that reality. In America, we are the modern gens secundum. We are increasingly looking like a strange race to much of the world around us that has tremendous political and economic power. Therefore, we must expect increased social disdain, ridicule, and rejection, and not be surprised. The ancient Jews were not surprised when they would move into a community and be treated with disdain. The ancient Christians were not surprised when their societies mocked them and created graffiti of a crucified donkey to symbolize their religion. We need to be expected not to run from it, but to not be surprised and knocked on our back heels when it happens. It comes because we have been called to be separate, to be in the world, but not of the world, and therefore distinctly different. We must accept being treated as intellectually backward. And let me tell you, this may be the toughest one for us. In American culture, you're considered being a person of value only if you meet one of five qualifications. You need to be beautiful, or you need to be powerful, or you need to be wealthy, or you need to be celebrity, or you need to be really smart. If you don't tick off one of those five, our society doesn't treat you as being really all that important. Well, most of us weren't born to win beauty contests. And though we're blessed in this congregation with some people who are accomplished in terms of financial means and are very generous with that, the vast majority of the Christians I know are never going to be wealthy. My wife told our kids growing up quite often, the good Lord knew we couldn't handle wealth and so he has kept us as far from it as possible. Most of us will never be powerful as the world considers power. Most of us will never be celebrity. And if we are, it'll last for a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, and it'll be gone. So we stake our self-worth and our self-image on being smart. That's why people become so defensive when you insult their intelligence. In the world I'm describing, we've got to be ready to have our intelligence insulted. Because ours is no longer the prevailing world view. So I close with this. A counteroffensive is long overdue. I've presented this not because I want us to be on the defensive. I'm presenting it because just like my friends in Ukraine have recently surprised the world by mounting a counteroffense 
against a nation they were not even supposed to be able to hold a military candle to, we as Christians need to mount a counteroffensive. And this is a time of new beginnings for this church with a new minister coming in with all the hopes and plans and all the things that we're thinking about we can do and that the ministries we can offer to the community and the ways we can extend our mission work around the world. I'm for all of those things. I get my hearty amen. But in the midst of it, let's not lose sight of the bigger battle that's going on and be ready and willing to be enlisted in the cause of the counteroffensive. God bless you.